Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party podcast. This one featuring David Davis, the Conservative MP. Could have been Tory party leader, could have been Prime Minister. And we find him in a bouillant mood uh, just before the uh, Christmas break. He was on absolutely cracking form. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll see you on the other side. Good evening, hello. Hello, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas everyone. Hello, I'm Matt Ford, one to the political party. Can we cheer if you've been here before? Yay! We cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Excellent, a good, uh, a good healthy chunk. Well, welcome uh, first timers. Has anyone had a Christmas card off their MP yet? Yeah. <laughs> 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 you uh, who's, who's the first voice? You, sir, what's your name? Andy Billingham. Uh, uh, full name? Uh, <laughs> National Insurance Number. The Andy Milligan, yes, present and correct. Uh, uh, Andy Milligan, um, great name by the way. Uh, which MP did you get a card off? Steve Brown. Steve Brown and Brain. Uh, Brain. Steve Brian. Oh, the Steve Brown. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, what was it? What was on the front cover of the card? You can't remember, you just saw the imprint, it went straight in the bin. Because MPs do various things with their Christmas cards. Uh, some go for, uh, they'll do a local competition with school children, and what you get is a, a Christmas card. He did that one. He did that one, he got the top answer. Never go on family fortunes, mate. Oh shit, no, go back a question, mate. I'm going to <laughs> um, um, Do you remember what has been drawn by these children? No. Keep going, tell him. <laughs> no, not, not, I'm not Darren Brown, mate. That's not what it's like. <laughs> yeah, usually what you get, the top answer usually is that they will do. A, a smart MP will do a, a Christmas card competition in the constituency where local school children compete by submitting different designs. And it's a good way of the MP to get across the constituency and then send a card out to everyone who took part and look like they're sort of encouraging local talent. All that happens is you end up with a Christmas card that looks like it was drawn by someone with... Problems. <laughs> the second option is to go for a nice parliamentary scene. That's the sort that's likely to make it to the mantelpiece. Uh, because if it's got Big Ben on it and it's snowing, I'm sure we've had all one like that with a nice personal photostatted signature in the middle. Uh, oh yeah, that's from my local MP actually, yeah. Uh, pretty big deal around Brockstone. Uh, <laughs> you can show that one or two mates. The third option, what I call the nuclear option, is when an MP decides to put Themself. <laughs> what are you? And it tends to be, I have to say, only the party leaders that do this. In what other walk of life would you walk into Clinton's cards and go, oh, hi, uh, yeah, just looking at the, uh, uh, the Christmas card section. Have, have you got any more that uh, are a little bit me? Uh, I saw your Christmas cards are lovely. None of them have my face on it. I mean, I don't understand why Moonpig must be doing a roaring trade uh, out of Ed Miliband at the moment, him and his family during the summertime. Look, I've got a family, I can produce kids, so I can't be that stupid. It seeming to be the sort of insinuation. Like, if I did, imagine if you did that with your mates. Merry Christmas, guys. There you go, open it up, a little surprise in there. 
It's got you on it. What? You don't have a family. It's, it's just you drinking a pint of Foster's in your shorts. This is tragic. And if you haven't got a family, who are those kids? This is the most awful Christmas scene ever. And the problem is as well, what I don't like about it is it ruins the magic. Like a Christmas card. You think, Who's this from? If you can't make out the, uh, you know, because the postman has probably tampered with it because there's no money in it. Um, now. Uh, so you, you sort of try and get into it and then you think, who's this one? It's a lovely, maybe it's got glitter on the front. And you think, oh, this is nice. And then you open it up and you go, oh, it's from, it's from Ed and his family. That's nice. I'll put that on the mantelpiece. Obviously, when you open it up and it's got their face on it, if you're going to put your face on it, I think what they should do is put their face inside. <laughs> It'll be amazing. Who's that car from? I don't know. I'm going, oh, Jesus, from Ed Miliband. God. Holy <laughs> The best Christmas card I've seen this year, I hope everyone else has seen it, is Godfrey Bloom's Christmas card. Everyone's seen this. Godfrey Bloom, for the uninitiated, uh, is, a, is an MEP, uh, formerly of UKIP, um, too extreme for UKIP. Uh, <laughs> Godfrey Bloom. He's been in trouble various times this year. Uh, firstly, for describing uh, Africa as Bongo Bongo land, uh, which is where we sent too much of our international aid. Secondly, for describing women as sluts. Uh, so, what he's done is. Uh, as a Merry Christmas card to all his fans, has done a Christmas card with him and his wife on the front, his wife um, plastered with makeup, with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, with like a feather duster, i.e., dressed like an old fashioned what they would describe as slut. Godfrey behind her, wearing a phenomenal expression like that, and a pair of bongos. <laughs> I mean, pair of lace like, what other politician would go? You know, since it's Christmas, I think I should remind people what a piece of shit I am. I think Chris Hinn should do one. One with him and his wife, and then one with his other missus. All in the back of a car. That'd be great. Clinton, just waving a cigar like that. Merry Christmas. I wonder what... I, well, I was racking my brains because Godfrey didn't send me one. Uh, I was wondering, I wonder what on earth he's written inside. Because when you make your own, you still put like a little imprint in, like Merry Christmas, don't you? I hope, for Godfrey's sake, that he's had so much of a sense of humour that inside, his actually says, Happy Diwali, and he's crossed it out and gone, I can't fucking believe it. <laughs> it gets everywhere. Merry Christmas. Uh, Godfrey is uh, a, a unique man. He um, still has his supporters. He, I invited him on the show, actually, the, uh, the September show. He was meant to be my guest, and he pulled out because of the um, slut gate, if we can call it that. <laughs> um, now... On his Christmas card story on the Daily Mail, a few people are actually backing him up. And to be fair, I sort of think, fair play, he's going to make a joke out of it. Some of the comments on the Daily Mail website have been uh, absolutely magnificent, and I'm going to share some of them with you now. Ralph, uh, who describes himself as being up in the mountains, um, <laughs> says, I really like Godfrey. No matter how much the do-gooders try and blacken him, his truth still... <laughs> I know. He's giving away the idea for next year's card. <laughs> This one, this one is phenomenal. Um, at least the chap has a sense of humour. Can you imagine Cameron, Clegg or Miliband having a laugh at their own expense? No, but I can't imagine them describing Africa as bongo bongo. <laughs> so to be fair, uh, swings and roundabouts. Um, the, the, the cards that they uh, send out are ridiculous. Uh, has anyone had one from Miliband or Cameron or Clegg? <laughs> right, OK, there's a few Tory MPs down the front that must have <laughs> Uh, Tim Lawton, ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause to Tim Lawton, the best guest we've had here at the, uh, at the political party. And now, Star of I got news for you. Tim, uh, welcome. Um, have you had one from David yet? Uh, I couldn't possibly. 
absolutely covered. Oh, Tim. Was everyone here for Tim? Yeah. All right, okay, well, let's Tim was one of our favourite guests Uh, earlier in the year wasn't it it was just after UK had done sort of quite well in the local elections uh, and Tim was the first Conservative we'd had on and uh, I said to him um, you know what is the difference between you and UKIP Tim because uh, you know you're a sceptic you voted against gay marriage what's the difference and Tim very coolly said uh, I'll tell you what the difference is I don't wear fucking cardigans (laughs) (laughs) legend absolutely amazing amazing Fantastic. Great. I mean, I knew the parties were close. I didn't know the only thing separating them was dress code. I thought was, uh, fantastic. Welcome. Uh, welcome back. Um, the only leader's card, to be fair, that I quite liked was Nick Cleggs, oddly enough. Because Nick Cleggs, what he allowed... He did a photo of him and his missus, but let his kids deface it. And then that is now the Christmas card. What they've done, they've put, like, a beard on him and a Christmas tree in the corner. So he's not quite defacing it in the same way that I would have defaced my father's Christmas card. <laughs> when I said he'd let him deface that, I thought, this is going to be phenomenal. There's at least going to be one cock and bollocks involved. <laughs> Surely there should have been. If you let your kids deface your card, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let them deface it if they didn't put a cock and balls on it. You've just drawn a Christmas tree and given me a moustache. What is the matter with you? I'm sending you to a comprehensive school. This is why. <laughs> it's on it. Of course, Mandela uh, did. Uh, pa- the problem is with Mandela passing. This is the main problem I have with it. It was ninety-five. You know, he was, he was, he'd had a good innings, and of course, led a phenomenal life. But the problem is, is you can't talk about Mandela without sounding like a politician. And we've all done it this week. So, what do you think of Mandela? You go. He made a great contribution. He stood for what he believed in. He stood up against those that wished him harm. He was prepared to go to prison for what he believed. And he showed grace towards his enemies. Two pints of hostas, please, mate. And, uh, <laughs> you've got to change to the quiz, or I think it's paying out. You can't, the problem is, you can't sound like a statesman. You can't, say, you can't talk like a statesman. You never get an apathetic statesman, do you? Because not everyone can be enamoured with him. That's just the, the nature of life, is that some people will feel closer to Mandela because of the, the phenomenal nature of his struggle. Other people will think, well, he was all right, but you know, I'm a bit young to appreciate him, or whatever. You, you would never get. And it's Blair with Diana that changed it all. Everyone thought, if you don't react like that, you look like a joker. You know, she was uh, the pupil's princess and that's how she will remain in our hearts. You know, all that sort of business. And it looked good and it worked for a day and it was, it was fantastic for a while. But the problem is, is that it's influenced everyone's reaction. If you don't react like that. So you get these ridiculous scenes in part where everyone gets up and pretty much says the same thing. No one ever stands up and says it like that but in an apathetic way. He was someone I was vaguely aware of. <laughs> From what I gather, he did some good. Um, although I thought he'd invented the wrestling move, the half Nelson, until about three days ago. <laughs> it would be far better. And the funeral, by the way, the funeral where Cameron and Obama are taking a selfie. And if you don't know what a selfie is, a selfie is where you say, no, I don't want to have a decent photo taken of myself, thank you very much. I'm going to take one at arm's length, at chin height, <laughs> to really get the best angle. People do them of themselves. They're called selfies, right? Because now with an iPhone, you can, apparently you can take a photo. There's a picture, if you haven't seen it, of Cameron, uh, Obama, I think he's the Prime Minister of Denmark, yeah. in the middle, at a funeral, going, <laughs> When did that become the thing at a funeral? Oh, it's awful, isn't it? What a sad loss. Oh, God. Oh, God. Please. No, no, no. Is that an iPhone 5? What's there? Hey! I can't imagine Churchill doing that at a funeral. Some terrible loss. Hello, Eisenhower. What's there? 
awful way to, uh, to behave. And if you're going to do one, by the way, I don't know if anyone knows this, but um, people do this on Twitter and Facebook. If you're going to take a photo of yourself, isn't the one that everyone puts on like the dating sites, one where you sort of take it from above? Mm. <laughs> that smoked you out, you old pervert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cameron can't do that, can he? You can't do Cameron taking photos sort of at an angle, sort of. <laughs> his hair all over his thing, like that. That'd look, that would look absolutely ridiculous. And of course, what Nelson Mandela's passing gave us uh, was the return of Gordon Brown. The return of politics past. Uh, he stood up and made, to be fair, quite a good speech. Did anyone see it? Yes. <laughs> a fellow ghost, by the sounds of things. It was, uh, it, was, it was actually very good. But the thing about Gordon Brown is that Firstly, he's had long enough to write it. The last time we spoke about it, I think, was about three years ago. Because <laughs> apparently, the only thing that's been important since then to his constituents was his phone allegedly getting hacked. Uh, not unemployment or anything like that. This is the stuff that he's chosen to speak out on. But he does this thing on Ram. It was actually quite good. It was probably the best speech I've seen him give in a long time. And uh, he does a thing, though, where he just sort of waffles on. But he does that thing where he'll just make one point, go on to another, go on to another. It's like an old lady. He's going, oh, I saw Neil the other day. You know he's going out with Amanda. You know Amanda that I used to work with at the school? You know school where we sent uh, Nicola and Joe? Whoa, 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 hang on a minute. <laughs> he sort of does that. He said, uh, uh, it was a pleasure to meet uh, Nelson Mandela at a football game. And of course, football's so important to society. Society at the moment under uh, uh, attack. And, and when people are under attack, we have to stand firm with them because no child should be left behind. Hang on, what? <laughs> Nelson Mandela, mate. You know, I saw, you know, I saw uh, uh, Janine the other day that I used to work for at, uh, at Tesco, and they say that every little helps. And well, the fact is, this coalition isn't doing everything uh, to help people. So they let those on the trolleys. I like to put a pound in the trolley. Have you got a pound? Well, I'm good. What are you on about? And then he does the thing where clearly people aren't listening anymore. So he does this thing where he just talks in like one sentence bullet points, one word bullet points. You know, Mandela showed his greatest uh, traits: leadership, uh, belief, uh, and courage, and power. He sounds like Alan Hansen talking about Peter Crouch. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, it's been a great crowd. And this is the last one of the year, so uh, um, we're going to have a proper Christmas send-off time. I've got a phenomenal guest for you in the second half. He's a politician that's always fascinated me. I've always had a massive amount of respect for uh, David Davis. Uh, it should be clear, that's David Davis, uh, not David Davies, uh, the MP for Monmouth. In case anyone was here for him, uh, I doubt that even happens in his own house. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, have a, we've got a break now. Uh, have a few beers, have a great uh, interval, and we'll uh, we'll join you with David Davis in the second half. I've been Matt Paul. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, uh, and for being so uh, great in the first half. Uh, we've welcomed guests uh, at the show uh, from across the political spectrum, and I've deliberately tried to get a good balance of uh, Labour, Liberal uh, and Conservative people, and tonight uh, we welcome our third Conservative guest, uh, the second Conservative guest that we've had uh, at this venue. He's a phenomenal politician, uh, stood in both the 2001 and the 2005 Conservative leadership campaigns, and went to the final round in 2005 against uh, David Cameron. A man who could have been a Conservative Party party leader, a man who could have been uh, Prime Minister indeed. He's led a phenomenal career. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive welcome to Mr David Davis. (laughs) 
David, welcome. Um, now, the, the tradition, it, well, it was a tradition for a while. What I would get is uh, the guest of one show to provide the guest, uh, the, and the question uh, for the next. Uh, and so Stella Creasy has submitted a question. Um, not clothing related. Um, I'm, I'm wrongly dressed. <laughs> It's, and this is a question. Do you feel our debate on civil liberties has become more or less progressive since you resigned your seat? Less. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. We've struggled to get people to give one-sentence answers here. One, that's a record. Um, we'll come on to... I mean, the by-election was something we were definitely going to touch on, of course. Um, but I thought, as it's Christmas, I thought we could pull a cracker... <laughs> And, and if there's a joke inside, would you mind telling it? Could, are we going to introduce this mechanism for, for uh, Prime Minister's questions? <laughs> Spot the ex-SAS guy, crikey. He went to con- carry out a controlled explosion on a cracker. There was, there was no Semtex, where is it? There we are. Here we are. You can have that bit. Cheers, mate. <laughs> you, he's going to put that out on. Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> you just me to read this out. Please. Do I get paid double for this. Here we are. Why do cows lie down in the rain? To keep each other dry. What is that? There you are. <laughs> why, do, why do cows lie down? In the rain. To keep each other dry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way he tells her. <laughs> um... um you, you're going to give up on this now. Okay, well, yeah. I do, I was, uh, do you want to wear a hat? No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Actually, I'll tell the joke. You wear a hat. It's a red one. Would you prefer a yellow I'll one? Do, no, I red. <laughs> red yeah, yeah. Anything but liberal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! Ooh. You what? what? What do hedgehogs have for lunch? No idea. Prickled onions. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> Imagine if I put my own material inside. It's, it's, it's a Godfrey Bloom joke. <laughs> He's my MEP, by the way. Godfrey is? Yeah. Have you had a card of him? Yeah, we'll have. Yeah, That'll be sitting on my, la- on my mantelpiece when I get home. Uh, but my wife's already told me about it. She said, look at it and see which of the two is in charge. Him or his wife. It's widely known around uh, East Yorkshire that uh, Godfrey's wife is the boss of the uh, Bloom household. <laughs> <laughs> really? Absolutely. Is he, is he yeah. sort of quite a henpecked chap, though, is he? Yeah, where do you think all this cleaning behind the sink came from? <laughs> <laughs> so it was her sort of leading it all. <laughs> wow. Um, do you ever get... I mean, you've got Godfrey Bloom as your MEP. Do you ever get... We mentioned David Davies in the first half. Do the two of you... Do people ever mistake you for each other? Does that ever happen? <laughs> well, you mentioned my by-election. Um, after the by-election, with lots and lots of civil liberties people wanted to get me to speak and so on. And the National Black Police Association invited me, right? And they wrote to David Davis, but they misspelt it. David Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S. And so it went to David. We had David member from Monmouth. And uh, <laughs> he turned up on the day. <laughs> And, and they were a little surprised, you know. Um, but but they were what, not as surprised as they were when he opened his speech for the words, if I had my way, this organisation would be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. 
Oh he, my he, God. He, he is the only man I know who had to have a police escort to get out of a police conference. <laughs> oh my word. Do you, I mean, do you, do you sort of socialise with him much? Is he, what's he like? Is he on your. <laughs> He's a lovely man. He's a lovely man. I mean, the, uh, the, he, he did actually, uh, he, t- he took up boxing. Uh, and oh, that's right. Yeah. Everybody thought it was me, you know. And the first, the first one he had, he was, he was up against the only gay boxer, the pink powder. I said, you better bloody win. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was his, his defence, because he was against gay marriage, uh, David Davies. And when yeah. someone said, you're homophobic, that was his defence. He said, I'm not homophobic. I used to be a, gay, I used to be a boxer. And when I was, I fought a gay bloke. <laughs> Worst defence ever. I'm not homophobic, mate. I've tried to knock one of them out. <laughs> Fascinating bloke. Yeah. So hopefully he'll be here uh, next year. Yeah. Um, I'll give you the first question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the atmosphere, I'd, I'd like to sort of focus on current events at the start uh, and focus sort of on the, the sort of atmosphere in the Commons, uh, last week's autumn statement and Ed, and Ed Balls and the way that he was conducting himself and uh, sort of people heckling him a lot. Were you, were you, were you there? Were you yeah, heckling him? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it was sort of a tragedy, really. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, I cannot believe he sat and thought about his opening line. Always about you're all in denial, you know. And the, the whole place sort of fell about. So yeah, it was a tragedy. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> I'm really sad. <laughs> <laughs> do you enjoy the atmosphere of the Commons when it's like that, when it's boisterous? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, it, 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 uh, up to a point. I mean, yeah. I, I, I do think the. I do, I do think that I should. I'll get it fired for this. I do think I do think the flashman tendency can win over too many times sometimes, but uh, uh, and the public get annoyed with that. But actually, no. I think the first speaker who I served under was Bernard Wetherill, and he always used to say that debate in the House of Commons is the English alternative to civil war. You know? <laughs> and he'd point out that there are two pink lines down the middle, the two sword lengths apart, so you can't get at each other. You know? Uh, and he's right. You know, it matters. The stuff matters. You know, we're talking about things that are life and death, sometimes absolutely literally in the case of Syria, but other times too. So we should get angry. We should get annoyed. We should get passionate about what we're doing. Otherwise, why are we doing it? I completely agree. And yeah. I, it's great entertainment. Yeah. yeah. That too. <laughs> that, that sort of adds to it though, doesn't it? But you've, you've stood there. You've sort of had it from all sides of the house, haven't you? Because you were a minister under John Major. Yeah. So you've stood at the dispatch box on the government side. Yeah. You've That's a lonely so job, by the way, minister under John Major. <laughs> <laughs> but what's he like as a leader to sort of deal with? Personally, terrifically charming. Um, he was a bit prone to reflect the last person who talked to him. I mean, he, he's, he, was, he was one of nature's real diplomats. And... He thought his role in life, uh, following from Margaret Thatcher, who people saw as a divisive figure, was to be a healing figure. But the trouble is the Tory party at that time did not want to be healed. You know, and so everybody was sort of pushing this way, and then somebody would push him that way, and they'd push him this way again. So we were going around in circles a lot of the time. But uh, a nice man, a good man, uh, and a very clever man, actually. Me, uh, bearing in mind he had virtually no education. I think he got two O-levels or something. And... and uh, uh, he was very, very smart, very, uh, very acute. So. Did you feel a sort of kindred spirit with him? You know, you're both from backgrounds that aren't traditional, you know, higher echelons of the Tory party stuff, you know, council estate boys or working class boys at, at, at the very least? Um, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> there was, did, did he ever sort of play on that and say, oh, David, those guys have got to stick together in the Tory party, there aren't many like no. us? No, I'm probably the only person... Uh, ever to swear at him when he tried to promote me. <laughs> what did he try and promote you to? It, well, he did. He didn't try. He did. He called me in. Uh, he called me in. I, I was at that, that point. I was minister for 
the civil service and, and spooks and things like that and science. That was, I was in the cabinet office. And he called me and he said, uh, David, I'd like you to be my Europe minister. And I'm afraid my response was, you must be fucking joking. <laughs> <laughs> was that because you, you thought it was a naff post or because of your views of Europe? Because of my views. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd, I'd, had, I'd had the dubious pleasure of taking the Maastricht bill through the House of Commons. I said, you don't think I took it through because I believed in that nonsense. <laughs> I, said, I only did that because otherwise the government would have fallen. You know, so, so, and he was a bit sort of bemused by that. Uh, he sent me off for two hours to sit in his study while he tried to find a uh, replacement for me. And uh, bless his cotton socks, Dun- uh, Douglas Hurd refused every other replacement. So I ended up doing it. I mean, that, that period in history for the Conservative Party was incredibly tumultuous, 92 mm. to 97 yeah. particularly, yeah. with Maastricht and then obviously the fall of the government in, in quite a sort of spectacular style. And then the years that have followed have, have been a sort of slow sort of coming to the senses. To, to have gone through all that and to have been in Parliament throughout that whole period, was there something oddly, was the drama oddly exciting to be around at that period? Well, I'm still there. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the thing about this job is it, it's a absolutely a volunteer's job. If I go, there are 200 people take my place, you know. Um, so, yes, it's, it's addictive in many ways. Every single parliament's different. You know, I, I was in at the end of Thatcher, literally, actually, <laughs> on the day. But the, uh, but, uh, the, so I saw the last Thatcher parliament, which was astonishing and bold and uh, uh, exciting in many ways. Uh, then major taking over, recovering from what we yeah. thought was a lost election, to the biggest election victory actually in history. It didn't show in the numbers right. where the actual votes were. Uh, then uh, the, of course, the early, well, the, the end of the end of Kinnock, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, he was an in- interesting man in his own right. I actually nominated him to be European Commissioner. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, then John Smith briefly, then Blair. Yeah. I remember John Major when I said, oh, the next one's going to be Tony Blair. He said, oh, he's no trouble at all. He said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Parliament at the moment is in it. I'm still a phenomenal believer in, in every. I think everyone who goes into politics, for the most part, is a good person, regardless of ideology. Particularly, well, they start out that way, anyway. They certainly start out that way, <laughs> okay. indeed. Yeah, uh, and it troubles me this sort of debate over MPs' expenses and, and uh, specifically over wages, because I think MPs deserve more than an 11. percent That's my idea too. Wage increase. <laughs> um, I mean, where do you stand on that then? Do you, you think MPs deserve more money? I mean, that was, that's a tricky thing to say out It's in a public. terrible time to say it. I mean, a, a terrible time to actually sort of bring this up. I mean, when everybody's facing, you know, uh, distress, reduced wages and so on, this is not the time to do that. Uh, but that being said, where did the expenses crisis come from? It started right back in Harold Wilson's day when he and Callaghan and Thatcher and Major and every single Prime Minister refused to pay MPs as much as a solicitor would be paid in London or, or, yeah. or a middle manager, you know, not, 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 a, not the beyond the dreams of avarice. But, uh, uh, but what they did, and I remember this when I first arrived, they said, oh, but you, know, you, you can bolster it with your expenses. I was horrified. I mean, I, you know, I'd come from a business background where every penny had to be accounted for to be told, oh, no, no, no. Uh, it's ridiculous. And, of course, what it did, it corroded people who came in, as I said, as good people, mm. and it corroded what uh, the, the standards they had, and, and some of them gave in to it. Not as many as... Uh, the press would have you believe, but some of them did. Because we're in a difficult position now where it seems that all the party leaders are saying, oh, we don't want an 11% increase. Mm. Uh, obviously, this is something that's come from IPSA, the Parliamentary Standards Authority, the sort of new body that was set up mm. after the expenses scandal, sort of take it away from the fees office that was felt was too close to MPs. But it does seem odd that seemingly no MPs want this right. I mean, obviously, uh, some, uh, who doesn't want a pay rise? Yeah. 
Um, but it's, I feel sorry for politicians at the moment that they can't openly say, no, actually, politics is an important job. Mm. We're underpaid relative to other industries. Mm. We deserve double. But you can't say that. Yeah. No. Um, you know, who, do you think the, firstly, do you think the pay rise will go through? No. No. There's no... They'll find a way of not doing it. You know. it's sort of, do you think that will put people off going into politics? No, no. I used to... I mean, people in, in my position... Tim, Justine's position, uh, are always being asked by people that, you know, how do I get into politics? What do I do? You know, and so on. And, and I used to say to them, I used to say to them, you know, are you really sure you want to do it? You know, you're going to go through all sorts of difficult times, no money and all the rest of it. Now I just say don't. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get, I mean, during the expenses, there wasn't really a, a single MP that didn't get, apart from John Mann, uh, the MP for Bassett Law, who sort of started, started the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, he, um, he was the only one, to my mind, that you could definitely name that probably didn't have any sort of negative publicity. No, it's two. It's Philip Hollowbone as well. Philip Hollowbone. Yeah. Is that the guy who looks like Sven? Oh, that's Peter Bone, isn't it? <laughs> and Justine Green, of course, yeah. <laughs> MP for Putney, 2005. Yeah, I was a lean cat, as Claudia was the Institute. I was one of the top ten best value MPs relative to where I run my office. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there were a lot of caveats there. I was top ten MPs relative to where I run my office. There's, there's, my there's someone who knows how to make a pitch, eh? She took the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> was there any, during the expenses scandal, did you, did you sort of get any direct public anger? Oh, no, no. I well, yeah, I, got, I got attacked by one of the papers, the Telegraph. But the, not really. I got about a dozen or so uh, letters. You know, and we all Which thought, you didn't reply to to save money. Oh, I did reply to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I come from Yorkshire. In Yorkshire, you're supposed to give as good as you get. You know, so you write back and tell them. Oh, sorry, it's a lady in the room. I can't tell you what I said. <laughs> but the uh, the um, oh, bugger that. <laughs> 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 the, but uh, you got a bit. I mean, everybody's expecting when they went out on the uh, on the on the uh, doorsteps to be you know torn to pieces. I think one person in the whole cam- in the whole election campaign on the doorstep. One. That's amazing, because I, I knew MPs at the time, predominantly Labour ones, who were petrified, yeah. who didn't want to go out campaigning, because they were, they were convinced, because all the local papers had extrapolated what they claimed for, and yeah. you know, hoovers and whatever else, and were just petrified of facing the public. Yeah, well, it's, uh, to be truthful, it, it was actually worse for Labour MPs, mm. because in some of the poorer Labour seats, you know, the, the, we're talking about sums of money bigger than people's wages, so you can understand mm. that the, the people were horrified by it, and they wouldn't know the details and the ins and outs necessarily. So it's not surprising. I felt for them. In terms of people's relationships in, in politics then, and there, there seems to be MPs' expenses was a scandal that sort of rocked people's faith in politicians. And of course, you know, every new generation says, oh, trust in politicians has never been so low. Uh, there's, a, there's a specific problem, isn't there, with this particular era of this reaction against what people would call a machine politician, a professional politician. And in that they mean people like Ed Miliband, you know, former special advisors who went to... You know, to PPE, Oxbridge, or whatever. Uh, or you know what it stands for, don't you? Uh, philo- politics, uh, poli- no. philosophy, politics, and economics. Piss poor economists. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Clegg and Cameron. Full of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, C- Cameron, Clegg, and Miliband feel sort of not normal. You come from a different background. Do you feel as if though they this sort of machine politician is a problem for modern politics? Yeah, it's got nothing to do with my background. Um, it, it is a drawback. I can 
I mean, the, it's, it's terrible sort of uh, the sort of thing that old men say. You know, oh, it's better in my day. You know, uh, the, the, the truth is that the best period of British politics, as far as Parliament's concerned, was the 1930s, when the country was facing all sorts of duress and problems and depression and pending war. But then a typical MP uh, would uh, either be a self, uh, be a millionaire from his own business, or he'd be uh, a union leader, not a union official, a union leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, or a professor, or, or a, a, a terrific lawyer, you know, sort of top of his profession. And the, as a result, the independence of the individual MPs was much greater. They had more outside interests, actually, but their <coughs> independence was much greater. Now, my feeling is that, 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 that the, the, the place is too heavily whipped. Um, uh, the more I sit in Parliament, the more I think government should be separate from Parliament, not as a part of Parliament, because everybody... You know, everybody has got this prospect of, if I vote against the government, will I lose a career, lose a job, and so on. The Syrian, in the, in the Syrian war vote, um, uh, I guess there were probably 50 MPs, at least, from the Tory side, uh, who voted for the government motion, who didn't want to, but did anyway. You know? So how would you do that? Then? That's a big problem. <coughs> Constitution problem. I agree with you. It, it, constitutionally, what would you have then? A presidential system to sort well, of move I'm, the seat I'm of power? I'm a, I'm a t uh, the terrible thing is, uh, the, 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 the American system is not, by no means perfect by a long margin, but the longer I've been in Parliament, the more I believe in um, a written constitution mm. uh, with protection for the press, for example. It's a very unfashionable thing to say after Leveson, but uh, I actually think the press should get the protection the American press gets, um, so you don't get... Uh, editors threatened with prosecution, as the Guardian was uh, over Snowden, um, and I think yeah, separation of separation of powers. I'd actually have, uh, if I had my way, uh, a government not chosen from within the House of Commons. I mean, uh, sort of. I can understand where these very radical. It never happened, so it's, uh, I can safely talk. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> but you can see why Parliament has gone that way, can't you? Because uh, you know. From my point of view, when, certainly when I worked for the Labour Party, I was very firmly of the belief that if people have voted for a particular party, that's the You worked for the Labour Party? I, oh, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, not anymore. I'm normal now. <laughs> I have fun and all sorts. <laughs> yeah, you, you can never have worked for the Labour Party. <laughs> but I, I sort of understand where that... Uh, you know, I have a sort of almost Blairite, or certainly oh. early Blairite view of, you know, people, people vote for a party, that's the programme that they want. Uh, you know, it's not uh, MPs were elected on a manifesto, so you, you deliver that manifesto to the people. And if things get in the way of it, then that's a frustration on democracy. How many manifestos have you read? Depressingly large amounts. <laughs> Everyone since '97, certainly. You're, you're an anorak then. It, well, did you read the Tory? More of a flasher Mac. Did you? Did you? Did you? Did you read the Tory one in 2010? Uh, an invitation to join the. Government of the United Kingdom? Yeah, I didn't know it was addressed to Nick Clegg. It's interesting that you're sort of. Um, <laughs> your reaction when I've mentioned your background is you're sort of, you know, you're obviously immensely proud of where you've come from and, you, and the career you've managed to carve out for yourself based on that, but you, you almost don't want to be defined by it. Is that fair? Look, I mean, when, when, I, when I did Desert Island Discs, the, the lady, Kirsty Young? Young, Kirsty Young. Who does it? Really charming lady. She, she, she described. She, she, she quoted me something I'd forgotten saying, and that is, I don't know what all this fuss about my background is. I'm just bloody normal, you know. And the raw truth is 
that when I grew up in a council estate, council house, tens of millions of people grew up in that circumstance. Yeah. So, so what's so special? It's only special because it's in a Tory party. You know, it's not actually special in any other way. So, yeah, no, I don't really sort of think it's terribly important. But do you, do you feel any sort of affinity with people that grow up in those areas? Do you feel, um, you know, that they're underrepresented, that you could be their champion? Well, sometimes I am. Um, I mean, we have the worst... This is going to be terribly technical and self-righteous, but we, we, we have the worst social mobility in our history now. Um, uh, the chance of a kid with my original background getting on in, in the way I've been lucky enough to is a tenth of what it was in my day. You know? uh, people are stratified. People are, people are sort of almost confined to the background they come from, and that's dreadful. So, yes, I do think it's important people like me and others uh, stand up for them. Actually, Tim used to as children's minister, terrifically. You know? um, so, it, no, it's important. Of course it's important. Actually, it defines our society. You know, we, one of the reasons we were and have been a massively more important country than we have any right to believe uh, to be uh, on our size and even on our economy is because we've used the talents of our people well historically and we're ceasing to do that. And that's because the loads of kids are just not getting the chances they should. And um, why is that? I mean, people talk about the closure of grammar schools. That's do you think that's it. fundamental? That's part of it, yeah. It's not only that, but it's part of it. Um, it's also, uh, ironically, I, I'm not sure at all that the, that the growth of of, uh, of uh, the size of the university sector has actually necessarily helped mm. because you now, well, you, it's changed now because people like Alan Milburn and I, and I have beaten them up a bit. But we got to a point where there were whole professions, uh, legal and accounting professions, saying we're a graduate only profession, which meant you know you'd have to pay your way and get your way through, through university before you could qualify. When I, when I was at school in my fifth form and I was talking to the cleverest guy in the entire year, uh, a guy called Stone, Ian Stone. He, I said, what, what are you going to study? He said, I'm leaving. I said, what, he's leaving? He said, yeah, he said, I'm going off to be a banker. You know? And uh, he says, you know, I can make money. While you're, while you're at university, you know, sort of uh, trying to eke your way through, I, I should be making money. By the time you get to university, I'll have, a, I'll have a banking qualification and I'll make loads of money. And I guess you'll see the banker, he probably did. But he went in at 15 or 16. And, you know, people started as, uh, as article clerks and so on. And we actually had a more open society in a way. It's become far more formalised and structured and so on. Again, it's getting a rather um, uh, sort of serious... Oh, it's so fascinating, though. So how, how would... But grammar schools are important, too. So would you bring them back? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, the I one mistake I wouldn't make, I hope, is uh, I wouldn't do what we... After the Second World War, there were three types of schools supposed to exist. There was supposed to be secondary moderns, technical... And, uh, and grammar school. Right? The grammar school has essentially been the academic stream, technical vocation, and so on. And the Germans did something like that and did it fantastically successful. It's been the most successful economy in Europe for a very long time. And we should have done the same. What we did was we put the money into grammar schools, but we then depleted everything else. And so everybody else didn't have such a chance. You know? I'd also do things like test at 11 and 12 and 13, not have a single, you know, a, a whole life changing chance, one go, like sort of winning at bingo. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So th there are lots of things to do, but you know, working for the working class, grammar schools for, for 50 years were really, really important. The problem, I suppose the, the, the main problem with grammar schools was what uh, everyone else got. You know, kids who went mm. to grammar schools did well, but yeah. then people who went to secondary modern... Were, you know, which, is, which is why you have to make sure that you, that you give them the, the resources necessary, the technical training. I mean, our technical training in this country is still very poor, even now. You know, government after government's tried to fix it. They've got a miserable job of it, really. 
So what about academies and free schools? <coughs> yeah, but they're going to take 50 years to have an effect. I mean, they're just very slowly. They're, they're a good thing. Yeah. They're an improvement. Um, but, but it's going to take a very, very long time to work. So it's fascinating. I, think, you know, I actually think if, if Gove had his own way, Gove would have grammar schools as well, but he doesn't have his own way, does he? Do you, so, if, oh, wow, that's interesting. Uh, well, I can feel Tim Lawton desperate to sort of, <laughs> 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 just to sort of chip in. He's, maybe, he's maybe allowed to heckle. <laughs> that's fascinating because Gove is so closely linked to free schools, and people sort of yeah. see that as his, as his real brainchild, and he is sort yeah. of he's the embodiment of that of that idea. Mm. But yet, you think that actually he's <coughs> serving up Cameron's agenda rather than his own. Well, it's a mixture of both. You know, it's a mixture of both. I mean, Cameron does not want grammar schools at any, at any price. I mean, they, 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 they were desperately trying to, their words, detoxify the Tory party, and they saw this mm. as part of it, as sort of stratification. How on earth you think that having 7% of the population have selective education because they can pay for it, mm. and 93% can't have it because they can't pay for it, well, actually not, those who can pay to go to an area with a grammar school can pay for it too, uh, is, a, is somehow not stratifying society. I don't know, but that's, that's it. So it's fascinating being able to talk to you about this because had things been different in 2001 or 2005, I mean, you, you could now be Prime Minister. It must be, do you ever sit there in Parliament and think, I mean, I'm sure many MPs sit there, but you were so close. Do you ever sit there and think, I'd have done things differently. I could be doing something about, you know, I'd have no. brought back grammar schools by now. No. Two, two maxims in life. I mean, uh, number one, uh, there's never any shame being knocked down as long as you get up again, right? And part of getting up is not sort of fretting about it. And the other one is just, I'm a rock climber, never look down. <laughs> <laughs> but it must be, but also you're a politician, aren't you, and, and, and you're, you're human. It's, it's only natural to sort of sit there and feel as if, oh, God, if things would have been different, I could have done things better. But I suppose part of politics is, well, part of being a good politician is, is arguably letting that go. Mm. Look, if I was run over tomorrow, or walking out of your studio today, I would be very happy with what I've got. I've been dead. Apart from severe before. injuries. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, no. I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming dead, not severe injuries. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be having a word with the driver. <laughs> a brisk word with the driver. Last time, last, no, never mind, I won't tell you, but the last time I was run over. Wow, well, you've got to now. You've got to. <laughs> it was only once. It was, it was, when, it was when I was 18, all right? I was going off to SAS selection, right? Yeah. I, I was the fittest I've ever been in my life, right? And I suddenly realised I'm about to go off to Wales to spend two weeks in the hills, running through the hills and yeah. carrying you know, almost all the stuff that goes with that. And I hadn't got a box of matches, right? So I run out of the Duke of Yorkshire quarters across, across, the, uh, across the King's Road and I'm hit by an A35 van. And you won't remember what an A35 van is, a little, little sort of tin plate van. And he hit me in the strongest part of my body, in the weakest part of his van, you know. And you won't believe this, but yeah, he hit me. I did a sort of roll, like a parachute roll, and I ended up standing up. I looked around, and this is wrecked van. <laughs> oh, my God! Oh, my God! Phenomenal! Oh, my God! Anyway, they didn't give me a pass on the spot, but it helped, should not it? <laughs> I think you should have joined the Avengers instead of the Tory party. Jesus. Incredible. I mean, you have got... I mean, what was the SAS like? That must have been incredible. Oh, I can't really talk much about that. It was hard work. Oh, it's Christmas. No, no, no. Now that you can't go. <laughs> you're, not the, you're the opposite of the bloke down the pub. Most blokes down the pub who get drink pretend they've been in the SAS. <laughs> you come to a pub, you've been in it, and you don't want to talk about it. No, I'm afraid not. Um, it must, but then what, what's the mindset then? Explain the mindset of someone who wants to join and do something that intense. And what then drove you to politics after that? 
justice a challenge, the first bit. Uh, justice a challenge, the second bit. I mean, the, the, uh, the, normal, the normal answer I give to, you know, why have I gone into politics is a long family history of psychiatric illness. And the more, the longer I serve, the more I think it's right, you know. But the, um, I, was, I was brought up by my grandparents. I was, well, no, I'm a single parent, uh, uh, offspring. And my grandfather was a communist. Uh, as a communist activist in the uh, in the 30s, he led he led one of the hunger marches, not the Jarrow March, which is often attributed, but actually one of the hunger marches for London. Uh, and when I grew up, I mean, my mem- my earliest memories were living in a prefab in York um, with my grandparents, grandparents, grandfather, and grandmother. And the person I remember most is my grandfather, and he talked about all sorts of things. Sort of, you know, marks for four-year-olds, you know. <laughs> Don't leave marks on four-year-olds, Jesus. Get <laughs> 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 yourself in all sorts of trouble. Nice line. <laughs> but the, but you know, the, and uh, it was, you know, he was, he, and he was a very passionate. He was, he was an amazing speaker. He was an amazingly uh, inspiring speaker. He was very passionate. Occasionally, used to go and see him speak, and he was very passionate about what he cared about. He had, he had loads of balmy ideas, he was a communist, but he was, uh, you know, it, was, it was great. It was as an inspiration to be interested in politics. It was magical, you know. Then I went through university in the late 60s when there were all of, you know, the anti-Vietnam riots and the sit-ins and all this, the same place as he went, actually. It got respectable by the time that uh, <laughs> Tim got there. And, um, and uh, it, was, uh, it was just galvanising. Politics yeah. was galvanising in those days. I mean, remember those are days when you had 80-plus percent people voted, you know. Uh, but universities, the, the kids at university were really cared about world affairs. They were all mad about it. They would have got the answers all wrong, but they cared about it. Uh, and so I became the national chairman of the Conservative Students. In days it was quite a big organisation. Um, and I got mollycoddled. To hell, you know, because uh, this, this, these are the future cabinet ministers. The way it's how, how wrong they could be, and um, and uh, so Ted Heath was was the prime minister. I used to have uh, four interviews a year with the prime minister. Wow! Uh, you know, uh, at the age of twenty-one, you know, twenty-two, and uh, and then at the end of it, they said, "Oh, you should run for parliament." And I said, "You must be bloody joking." Um, uh, I said, "You know, somebody comes to my surgery to, you know." Uh, ask about the problem with the kids. I've got no family. They ask about their job. I haven't got a job. I mean, they ask about their housing. I haven't got a house either. <laughs> Not a bloody good idea. You know. I said. I said, ask me again in ten years' time. You know, well, nobody's got a memory that long. So, uh, and so I left it for ten or fifteen years and then came back. So, in those early years when your ideas were galvanising, you know, sort of from your grandfather's knee to, to them being uh, chair of the Conservative University uh, group, we did you start out left wing and then sort of yeah. drifted it? Yeah, yeah, I think I was. Uh, Left of centre at, at, uh, at uh, school. I remember telling my current affairs master I despised him because he was so rich. Um, <laughs> so yeah, probably. What a thing for a child to say to. <laughs> was that a parents' evening? I'm afraid <laughs> David hasn't been doing his homework this term. I despise you because you're rich. <laughs> Mother, we're leaving. <laughs> Incredible things to say. So you always, you always sort of felt that need, and that's something that is um, synonymous with not even just political leaders, but sort of you hear stories about Brian Clough being sort of quite uh, forthright at a, v- a very young age with his teachers. Yeah, sort of political Tourette's, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's fast forward a bit then to the 2005 uh, campaign. 
with anyone who stands in a leadership uh, election. We've had so many guests here, and some uh, say that they joined to be a local MP. Uh, some will admit that they had leadership ambitions and you know that, that it's never come to fruition. You obviously had leadership ambitions. You put your neck out there. What is it like to go through that spotlight, the, the sort of immense scrutiny on yourself, but not just on your ideas, but people must have been sort of delving into your private life and stuff like that. I mean, it's total scrutiny, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Actually, I, I very nearly featured in the hacking uh, exercise because uh, what's that guy's name Mulcair yeah Glenn Mulcair uh, throughout all throughout all the hacking episodes the pre-Leveson stuff I, I was you know I kept being asked by the press you know you must have been hacked you know, you know and after all I got quite resentful that I wasn't hacked you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really important enough I'm boring you know and then and I kept ringing up every time you know, I, you know the, the, uh, they'd ask I'd, I'd get uh, Renato, who's here, you know Renato, to ring up the pre- ring up the Metropolitan Police and say, "Was he hacked? Please, was he hacked?" You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, they said, "No, no." no. <laughs> and then eventually, eventually, he said, "Oh, can we come and see him?" So they come in to see me, oh. and these two people, these two coppers, come and sit in my office with a file, sort of, sort of a Manila file on their on it, and they said, um, "Mr." I better better change the names to protect the guilty. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Davis, do you know anybody called Amanda Holden? <laughs> you know, and, I, and I said, no, should I? And, they, and I said, and uh, do you know um, her mother, Sarah Holden? And you, can you see it coming? This is Alan Clark. And it turned out that, the, that obviously somebody had told these, these guys I'd had this, uh, this affair, you know. Uh, you know, it would have been impressive, you know, Alan Clark style, but, you know, yeah. but, but it wasn't true. You know. oh, but so, 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 so that sort of thing went on all the time. So, yeah. and during a leadership campaign, you're, you're put. Fortunately, I'm boring. <laughs> oh, I don't think no that's true. No girlfriends, no boyfriends, no drugs. <laughs> that changes tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We're taking you out, Dave. Get the coat. <laughs> Are there volunteers out there? <laughs> 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 but that, to go through that leadership campaign, so in terms of going through a campaign, you, you decide you're going to stand, you get your allies, yeah. you organise, you get a campaign headquarters, um, and then it's that process, isn't it, and you will obviously be able to tell me better, of then trying to figure out who's on your side. Mm. And did you sort of have a plan for first ballot, second ballot, third ballot, and the people that you would sort of hope to gain on each? No, not really. No. <laughs> Did you have any plan at all? <laughs> well, next time I'll remember to write the speech. <laughs> well, the sp- I was going to ask you about the speech, because the, the one thing that I thought was... Um, I thought Cameron gave a very good speech, to be mm. fair, but I thought yours was very good as well. And uh, to be fair, I thought he's got a disproportionately good press. Mm. Was that... Well, that, that was very clever briefing and organisation by him. I mean, my speech wasn't as good as it should have been, but, uh, but it wasn't as bad as it was represented either. And... Uh, yeah, they just did a very good job of getting their own people into the press and briefing it and so on. Very Blairite. To be commended. Uh, do you think... Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Was there a sense, did you feel a sense, you know, from the, from the public's point of view, and I, um, or from an outsider's point of view, more to the point, there felt a sort of inevitability that Cameron was the next guy. Mm. Um, not as much as F. Blair had been for, mm. for Labour in 94, but that there was a view that the Tories needed someone... Uh, that probably wasn't that well known, actually, oddly, mm. uh, that felt sort of more centrist, felt more uh, ameliorating. Did you feel that yourself during the campaign? Did you think, actually, there's almost an inevitability to Cameron winning this? No, what I, what I did feel right from the beginning was that 
Well, what, let me sort of rephrase the question slightly and, uh, and ask me again if I've, missed, if I've sidestepped it, uh, <laughs> which I will. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever people ask me about who's the next leader going to be, for example, yeah. I always say to them the following thing. One year before Thatcher, we didn't know about Thatcher. One year before Major, we didn't know about Major. One year before Hague, we didn't know about Hague. Mm. One year before and after IDS, we didn't know about IDS. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> and, uh, I get? oh yes, uh, one year, be- one year before Cameron, nobody knew about Cameron, and and the, <laughs> and, the and the and the simple truth is that you know you, there is a almost a not an iron law, but there's a sort of rule in politics that the less history you've got mm. at the point of the election, as long as you're well enough known to qualify, yeah. The less history got, the better. It works for some reason. Novelty, freshness, you know, the future. Because uh, leadership elections are always about the future, obviously. And if you if you've got the air of the future about you, that's what it feels like. You know? So that's that's really the, what, how I saw the mechanics. What, you know? And I expect. And funny enough, I sort of say I expected it is an exaggeration. Um, I had a feeling in my bones in the beginning mm. that something like that was going to happen. But you felt, firstly, that you could win. But secondly, was there, was there any sort of part of you that thought, well, if I don't win, you know, this side of the party needs a, a strong voice in this campaign? Uh, no, I'm a sort of um, ridiculous believer in democracy. I think you know, the, the outcome is the outcome, and the win is the win. Uh, as for the whether, the, look, if if there was one of me and nobody else shared my beliefs, I'd still say the same things. You know, sometimes that's true. <laughs> no, they are. Uh, but the uh, but the but the simple truth is that uh, I, I'm, I have a completely different view of I have a completely out of date view of politics uh, uh, since not, not just since Blair but before him Clinton because uh, Blair copied from Clinton a lot of the techniques. The tendency in modern politics has been to say, what do people think? And then, can we say it? You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, can we sort of be the vo- the voice piece that sort of said what people already approve of? I think that's completely the wrong way around. I take the view you should decide what's right, and then you should make it popular, not find out what's popular and then make it your policy. Mm. Uh, and of course, that's a harder way to do politics. And it may be impossible today. You know, with you know Twitter and twenty-four uh, hour news and blogs and all that, it may just not be possible to resist the uh, the onslaught of of public opinion. But I don't believe it. I mean, I, that, you know, I might be wrong, but I, I think that actually there's an appetite in the public for people who believe in things. Yeah. When I had when I had my violation, I got them. It was the second time. I got the most almighty pasting, particularly from the electronic press, yeah. Nick Robinson and others, and yeah. so on. And it's quite interesting to watch. At this point, um, modern media helped me because Robinson gave me a real going over on the uh, on the on the BBC News, which is after all dominant these days. And then the next two days, his admission, he had more adverse, he had more comments first on his blog site than he'd ever had before. Wow. Uh, and they were all against him and in favour of me. And, uh, and when, the, uh, when the Mail on Sunday, scarily, polled my own constituency over the weekend, I suddenly heard they were doing it. You can imagine the panic I felt. <laughs> uh, 74% said I'd done the right thing. So I think there is an appetite for people who know what they believe and stand up for it. Uh, but I just don't think we've quite learned out how to marshal is that it. is there a, a sort of demarcation there between what people want in a local MP and what people would want in the leader of a country, perhaps? They would want their local person to say, you know what, I disagree with what they say, but they're a good, strong voice. But overall, 
people perhaps feel more drawn to someone who's uh, more of a healer, someone who's in, uh, you know, traditionally, if you look at the last few elections, in the centre ground, someone who's maybe more, you know, well, watches if, if their words, is more if of a natural. That was right. Thatcher would have failed. Major would have succeeded. But it's changed since then, hasn't it? That the no. sort of new era, the sort of post-Thatcher era. Do you think? No, I don't think it has. I don't think it has. I mean, what's changed since then is the problems have got a bit less simple. I mean, you know, in, in Thatcher's day, there were some fairly, pr- pr- fairly straightforward uh, economic problems, straight, not straightforward to fix, but really straightforward to understand. Yeah. And now, uh, you know, if I, d- I don't think any of the Western leaderships, uh, ours, uh, American, European, understand how to deal with the economic problem we have, you know, and uh, uh, because it's so complicated and difficult and very, very hard to articulate. So no, I don't think the people have changed much. I mean, bear in mind, it's the same. Vo- Look, it's almost the same voters as voted for Thatcher. I mean, yeah. do you know what the median age of, of voting is? Uh, that, that, that that age above which half of the people uh, are voting? Probably fifty-five or something. It, it was fifty-five about ten years ago. It's probably now fifty-eight. Mm. In other words, a huge proportion of the actual vote is cast by people either taking a pension or just about expecting not to get one. <laughs> during the uh, during the campaign, when you're sort of set against David Cameron, then obviously uh, it's the, just the normal stuff of politics that they'll be briefing and counter briefing and stuff like that. Yeah. How did you manage to keep, or did you manage to keep your relationship with David Cameron civil? Yeah, we didn't speak to each other. It's pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I joke, but but there's an element of truth in it. I mean, uh, there wasn't at least on. Uh, on our side, much briefing. In fact, one of the problems we had was the, the Cameron drug story ran, and we had to sort mm. of pull back and not let in. I tried to stop any of my people talking about that, you know. And, you, you know, when you've got a sizable organisation of MPs, stopping them talking is quite difficult, you know. <laughs> um, uh, so we didn't, we didn't very much uh, brief. Uh, the, uh, so, uh, and during... What the, the phases went, so the run-up to the, run-up to the conference... Then all we had to go around the, around the country and debate each other mm. all over the country, and we had to do five TV debates as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we really only saw each other at those points, you know. And it was across a debating podium, really, you know. Uh, so there wasn't much time for sort of chit chat, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I like David Cameron, and I think you know I, he's, he's he's a fairly charming man. Uh, he can be cross sometimes; he can be difficult, but uh, a fairly charming man. And, you know, I'm, I still hope he succeeds. You know, he's he's got, a, got a pretty uphill task to win the next election, just because of the way the system's stacked. Well, it is. And my main thing, I've, I've spoken to people about this, is firstly, the parliamentary system disproportionately rewards Labour for their share of the vote. Mm. So that's a sort of inbuilt uh, yeah. problem, really, for, for anyone who believes in democracy. The second problem is, where has David Cameron added votes since the last election? Who has he charmed? Who has he brought on side? Mm. For all the people that he would have lost, or the coalition would have lost, mm. where are the, where's the new constituencies? Where do those new votes come from? Much as I despair at the state of Ed Miliband, and it, it pains me to say this as a Labour Party member, I don't want him to be Prime Minister. <laughs> and that is... That is you know, oh, it just I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying myself now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, think it's only, I think it's only fair, you know, if I'm sort of asking you these questions. I, I, and I know a lot of people, that, Labour people, that feel the same. And it's a really difficult position to be in when you think... You know, I'm a Forest supporter. We've had some dreadful, <laughs> dreadful players over the years, but I always wanted us to win. But is it that, gets is that a sports team? 
<laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a football team. They're, 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 they're rubbish. Um, <laughs> but I, it's a genuine problem. I speak to a lot of... You know, I probably will vote Labour. Well, I definitely will. Um, but it's a major problem when you find yourself... I mean, if you've ever been in a position like that as a Conservative where you think, you know what, I, I almost don't want us to win. No, no. Bear in mind, on my ballot paper, the European elections, it's Godfrey Bloom. <laughs> 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 and all sorts of other, all sorts of other people. By the way, I did vote. I got thrown out of the party. Man oh. called, it was a man called Edward McMillan Scott, and I forgot what he did wrong. What did he do wrong? He was just a tosser. <laughs> 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 I mean, if that is the criteria. We, we, we. <laughs> you, see, you see, we have a terrific choice of candidates at each <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. Um, Obviously, then after the after the sort of 2005 leadership campaign, you, you became shadow home secretary. Yeah. And then in 2008, uh, and this is sort of uh, this was when Brown was prime minister, when the government wanted to, I think it was take the uh, the number of days from detention without trial to detention without charge, yeah, without charge. up to 42 days. Yeah, six weeks. Yeah. Six weeks detention without charge, specifically for terror suspects. Yeah. Uh, and this was something that you felt very strongly about. <laughs> At least about. initially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is something you felt very strongly about, that you resigned as Shadow Home Secretary, you, resi- you resigned as your MP, and forced a by-election which used to, to sort of raise the issue of civil liberties. Yeah. And we touched on it a little bit in this, uh, in this chat already. But at what point did you think, this is the only way that I can sort of get this point across? There was... Well, you need... I mean, this is, this is going to take about two minutes. It's quite complicated, but um, I'm afraid. Uh, no, it's, 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 it's... Either you want to understand it or you don't. I don't mind. We can move on to the next subject. No, I'd rather you explain that. The, I think most look, people would. The, the first problem we had was not that we would lose in the Commons because we were going to defeat it in the Lords. We mm. knew that. The problem was that 72% of the people of Britain thought that Brown had the right policy, yeah. you know, uh, they sort of listen to you say, we're going to lock up terrorist suspects for 42 days. The typical response is, what's wrong with 42 years? You know? <laughs> um, but, of course, it's detention without charge, and it's, yeah. you, they're suspects. That's the point. And many of them are innocent. And there were plenty who were innocent who were locked up for four weeks. So um, my problem was not that we'd lost that. The problem was that Brown was, would bring it back. We'd, we'd, lose, we'd, lo- we'd win in the, in the Lords. Yeah but then he would bring it back under the Parliament Act immediately before general election. Yeah. And I did not believe my party would have the nerve to face them down. So what I had to do? I had to change the 70%. How do you change people's view when 70% are against you um, with a couple of sound bites, which is way more than politics would? The only way you could do it is to hold their attention on the issue for a, for a long period of time and make them pay attention. And I came to the conclusion the only option was a sacrificial gambit. And sadly, it was me, the sacrificial <laughs> gambit. But that was it. I would rather, if I could have found any other way of doing it, I would have done Because I love being a shadow home secretary. I love knocking off home secretaries every, <laughs> every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, the campaign itself was fascinating. Because at one point, I remember um, Mackenzie was going to get involved and was going to sort of stand against you, wasn't he? The Who? former, the son, uh, the former oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Kelvin Mackenzie was going to. McKenzie, yes. He was sort of moved to it. It was a phenomenal sort of national debate. And it was a period where, after. 9-11-7-7, obviously in the midst of Iraq and Afghanistan. I think there was a general feeling that perhaps the government was wrong in going to Iraq. But there was a sense that people didn't really know where to stand on something like this. Like mm. People knew that the government wanted to be tough. I think people in themselves thought, we need a strong reaction. But in the, in the malaise of that, people were, I think, 
perhaps too keen to listen to the security services mm. and go along with them. Why do you think the security services were... T- I mean, uh, initially they were asking for 90 days. They were, yeah. Why do you think the security services were so out of step with public opinion? Was there anything decent in their argument about holding people for that amount of time? Before I answer that charge? question, I must, I must tell you a very short story about McKenzie, Kelvin McKenzie. <laughs> he was a Sun editor, remember? And you know how popular the Sun was after Hillsborough in Liverpool? Right? Mm. They hated They couldn't sell a copy. And I saw him at the Mur- I was invited to the Murdoch party, ironically, mm-hmm. uh, during the middle of my by-election campaign. And, and I went up to him and I said, Kelvin, I said, I'm really looking forward to you coming to join in the by-election campaign and fight against me. We've got already two busloads of volunteers from Liverpool. <laughs> 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 so he didn't join. I don't know why, but there we are. Anyway, um, the... Uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> it was yes, about to tell you that joke. I'm teasing you, look. It was the, the, the first time around, the 90-day stuff, was the, in the six months after 7-7. Mm. Actually, it was much harder to defeat that argument because you imagine the sort of fire in people's minds uh, about, about this. And the agencies and the police all chipped in behind it. Right? The 42 days wasn't supported by the agencies. Indeed, it was defeated in the Lords after a fantastic speech by Eliza Manning and Buller. Mm the immediate past head of MI5, who just retired six months before, who said, this is not necessary, we don't want it. It was all politics. This 42 days was Brown trying to do something that Blair failed at. Mm. Remember, the 90-day defeat for Blair was his first ever defeat in Parliament, right? right? Uh, And a lot of brave Labour MPs joined us in the lobbies to to, to see him off. Uh, And uh, Brown was trying to do something that Blair couldn't do. Uh, And, of course... At the end of it, and he thought there was a political profit in it because 70% of people supported it. By the time the by-election campaign was over, mm. 70% of people opposed it. So the, the, the thing had switched around, so it's no longer worth it. But it wasn't that time, it wasn't about the agencies. The agency problem comes more with surveillance and all that sort of stuff, mm. which we've got now, uh, than, uh, than that. Do you think agencies have, have too much influence over prime ministers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, particularly in this day and age. I mean, uh, the, trouble, the trouble is that most modern politicians experience of the sort of conflicts that agencies deal in. It's just by watching spooks or, or, uh, or Hollywood, you know. Um, it, when, when Margaret Thatcher went into the Falklands, she had around uh, Peter Carrington, um, Willie Whitelaw, Pym, all of whom were commanded mm. tank battalions in the Falaise Gap. And Carrington had uh, led the guards' armoured going into Arnhem. In Arnhem, we lost an entire airborne division because of an intelligence fuck-up. I'm picking my words carefully. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, they, 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 there, was, there was an entire Waffen-SS tank division there waiting for our lightly armed airborne troops to, to land so they could shoot them all. And that's pretty much what happened. And we photographed it and ignored it. You know, so the likes of, of, uh, of uh, the people that Thatcher had around her understood intelligence is fallible. The guy coming through the door isn't James Bond. He's just some bureaucrat bringing you some papers that are probably wrong. Uh, and so they were very, very much more sceptical. Today we have rather more impressionable politicians across the board, it's not just, uh, not just my party, it includes Blair, I'm afraid, mm. um, uh, who believe this nonsense. They believe the dodgy dossier. It's rubbish. You know. So you, know, you look at, you look at uh, intelligence gathering today and just got to remind yourself, it's about as reliable as the front page of the Times. <laughs> do you, um, <laughs> or less. Is there, is, why do modern politicians, I think this was definitely a fault of Blair, sort of beguiled by the intelligence services? Is it because it sort of feels cool and illicit and there's something uh, slightly Hollywood about it? It's a bit of that. There's also a bit of risk aversion, you know. Um, 
they come and say, you know, if we don't get this, Prime Minister, we can't guarantee the safety of the country. Well, they can't guarantee the safety of the country anyway. You know, um, uh, and actually, the size of the threat is terrible when people get killed and blown up. And, of course, it's what the terrorists want, is to have it over all the newspapers, everybody's scared of it. But 55 people died in the last decade uh, in our country of terrorism, compared with 3,000 over the decades of the Irish um, uh, Troubles. Uh, and yet in the Irish Troubles, we didn't want to surveil everybody and, uh, and keep everybody under, under scrutiny and so on. So it, 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 there is a bit of... Um, Excess glamour. Because, we, uh, because we're surveilling people as we are, only 55. No, no. And in fact, actually, if you look, um, uh, if you look at what actually happened, we we very carefully. We had a, I was the shadow home secretary at the time, and we had an. Uh, if you remember, the year before, the uh, Spaniards had a bomb attack, <coughs> and one of my concerns was that if. Where, uh, and, and by the way, the Spanish government changed. It was in the run-up to the general election, yes, right. and the Spanish government changed. Uh, and the, <coughs> then, the, then the Spaniards pulled out of supporting the Americans in Iraq and so on. And I took the view at the time, and possibly wrongly, um, that what, it, what mustn't happen is if they bomb us during a general election, and then we use that against the government, as well, we turn on the establishment, we will then be feeding al-Qaeda. So we devised a policy called the D1, D2, D3 policy. It just meant day one, day two, day, day three. Which we looked at all of the terrorist events and worked out what we did and didn't do. So when you say we, is this you in government? Or is no, no, this, this, is, this is me and my team, my, home, my shadow home affairs team. One okay. of whom was a guy called Patrick Mercer, who, who yeah, was an ex... Yeah, MP for Newark. Uh, and an ex... ex Sherwood uh, Forrester. Uh, that's right, ex Sherwood Forrester, but also heavily involved in, our, in the Irish problems and mm. so on. And, and on the intelligence side as well. Um, and well connected, so we knew our way around the subject. Uh, and yeah, I was, I was, I had, I'd used, the, I did the spooks in both the Foreign Office and in the Cabinet Office. So I'm used to the subject. Anyway, uh, the whole point was not to allow them to split the country again in the way they did in Spain, because if it happened in a second democracy, there would not be anywhere in the Western world a safe general election. So that was the idea. Uh, so what we didn't do specifically was criticise the agencies. We absolutely didn't. And if you look, and in the one occasion when I actually corrected Michael Howard and survived it, um, uh, when he did criticise him for one, for one short period. Uh, but the, uh, the, the aim was not to allow that split to happen. But the trouble of, about that was people didn't really look very carefully at what went wrong in 7-7. And we did actually have under surveillance the people who did the bombing. And we actually bugged them and listened to them talking about, you know, blowing up what was... Uh, it was something about blowing up slags in a, in a you know, mm. blowing up women in a in a in a in a, in a, uh, a disco, wasn't it? That was the thing they were doing. Really nasty sort of language, uh, and they were followed to the one place where there were bombs being made, and nobody checked it. Nobody followed up. Now, why was that? That was actually because they had two thousand odd people under suspicion, and they didn't have enough people to cover that. So they just gathered that li- a little group, and this and the actual bombers were outside the little group. This time around, you got Lee Rigby, the person who mm. killed Lee Rigby. Well, I care what I say, but the, but the people who are alleged to have killed Lee Rigby. But what, they attempted to recruit them. They let them go to Somalia. That's right. the, the, the issue here is a wrong strategy. You don't find uh, a single uh, a single pin in a haystack by, by having dozens of haystacks 
And that's what we're doing at the moment. We're just extending everything so far that actually differentiating what's a real threat and what's not is a real problem. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a I don't like civil liberties. There's a freedom problem, a freedom <laughs> under the law. You know, I, 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 I prefer the word freedom. It's, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't have the connotations of civil liberties, which, which is sort of con uh, has connotations of people sort of uh, getting off of things in prison, you know, that they shouldn't do or whatever. But the, the, uh, it's a freedom issue. It's also a justice issue, but it's also an effectiveness issue. Uh, and I actually think that what, uh, what our agents are doing now is hugely ineffective and hugely expensive. Is it a resourcing uh, issue? No, they've got vast amounts of resource. We, we, you know, we, stop, we stop two plots a year, and it costs us two billion pounds a year. So a billion pounds a plot. You know? so in more expensive than my local allotment, that's for sure. But it's interesting that you, d you don't want to use the word civil liberties, but obviously your stance on it actually did draw support from across what you'd call you know, the civil liberties spectrum. Yeah. And what's interesting about politics is when you get these alliances between someone on the right, like yourself, mm. uh, and someone on the left, and, and I think even you yourself have some phenomenally, what I would almost contradictory opinions. Mm. So you're a passionate campaigner against torture, mm. but in 2003 you supported the death penalty. Yeah. Explain why one is right and one is wrong. Well, the first thing you've got to differentiate between innocent and guilty, mm. you know, and um, the people being... Oh, definitely. Torture and kill innocent people. Well, most people who are tortured probably are innocent. That's the first thing to remember, you know. I mean, um, uh, secondly, I mean, the, 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 the death penalty thing came up because I'd just been made Shadow Home Secretary. That's right. And I was asked this question. Now, look, let's understand something. The death penalty will never come back to Britain. The House of Commons will never vote for it. I, will, I certainly would have sponsored it if I'd been uh, Home Secretary. But it just seemed to me that they were asking me a moral question. And I thought, well... And I said to them, and I explained it in these terms, or they got lost in the headline, as it does. One, what's wrong with the death penalty? One, you, you hang the wrong person. You, know, you, you execute the wrong person. That happens too often. Or has, once too often, but it's happened many times. Secondly... Uh, it's not necessarily a deterrent in most sorts of murder. Most yeah. sorts of murder. Thirdly, you know, w w you know, is it ever right to execute somebody who's killed somebody in a, in a, in a fit of passion? You know, they come back and found their wife in bed with somebody else or whatever, like you know, that sort of thing. Or somebody who's been abused and assaulted uh, mm -hmm. over years and suddenly breaks. If you can get past all those three things, then then it's justified. That was that was my that was essentially my argument. Um, and I think morally that's right, but. It's never going to happen. Um, torture was not something I chose. It came to me. I'd, I'd, I'd already, I'd already um, uh, done the, the by-election. I'd been and I'd, I'd uh, stuck my oar into Afghanistan as well and a few other things. And then, and then uh, I got rung up one day. And a chap said, uh, I've got an issue. I'm, my name's David Rose. I'm a journalist. And I'm trying to get people's attention for an issue. Uh, and at this point, nobody really knew about torture, about our complicity in it and so on. And I said, well, explain the problem. And he told me about the, the Britain's complicity in it and the fact there was a statement coming out from the court the next week. And I said, well, so what's the problem? I mean, the press will cover that. He said, no, no, no. The press all think that these are the wild fantasies of left-wing liberal lawyers. I said, right. And you, what, what do you want me for? He says, well, you're not a left-wing liberal lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and so I... Popularise, that's the wrong word. You don't popularise torture. Um, I, I've made the issue an issue, yeah. a big national issue, and now, of course, it's become apparent. Gibson reports about to come out. It will show that we've been involved, sadly. Um, torture is morally completely reprehensible, and it doesn't work. If you remember when uh, the Americans 
justified the uh, invasion of Iraq, uh, Colin Powell said, I have absolute evidence. I, he said it in the UN, very embarrassing for him. I have absolute evidence. You know what that evidence was? There's a man called Sheikh al-Libi. They captured. He was part, he was part of uh, um, al-Qaeda, so he wasn't an innocent man. Uh, but they basically, they tortured him with waterboarding. I don't know if you know anything about waterboarding, but you know, yeah. they talked to him. And what they did was, let's imagine you're Sheikh Al Libby, right? Yeah. Um, is <laughs> How far do you want me to go into this role play? Uh, <laughs> I think anybody, if I do the accent, I'll any, get into trouble. Anybody, anybody got some towels and a bucket of water? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen Christopher Hitchens got waterboarded, yeah, on, uh, yeah. waterboarded on telly. But, but anyway, let me just the, the point is yeah. very simple. Okay. Are, is Iraq going to supply you with weapons of mass destruction, your Al Qaeda? No. Under the water, right? Yeah. 87 times. Are oh, Iraq going to supply you? Eventually, he says, yes. You know, he learns. He's quick. <laughs> and that's the evidence. See, what's so the f- we invaded a country. Hundreds of thousands of innocent people died off the back of evidence coerced out of somebody under torture. I mean, yeah. Um, the Americans don't call it torture. They call it an enhanced interrogation technique. Yeah, but then... Well, they certainly did at the time. Try it. What, okay, so what I recommend level? you try it. I have no desire I can, to... I can to, tell you, to, we used to call it the water treatment. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it looks horrific. It is horrific. Um, yeah. But how far then should police, security services go in getting information out of people? Is there a limit? Should there ever be physical contact between sort of interrogating... Or beating and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. No, never. Never. It's not necessary. Um, it would take too long to tell you, but I'll give you a very, very, very short hand... Read a book by a man called Ali Soufan, FBI. He was the man who was investigating the bombing of the USS Cole. Do you remember that? Mm. The bombing in Yemen of 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 an American ship. And he had fantastic success. Basically, befriending, tricking, cajoling uh, information out of people. There's a little bit of coercion in the sense of, you know, not giving them rewards and things, but no torture, no, no beating, nothing like that. No humiliation either. And, and it's fantastically effective. Much, much more effective than the, what the CIA did. And the CIA, remember, up until 9-11, the CIA had not interrogated anybody uh, for real for 25 years. So this was a bunch of amateurs coming along, finding some techniques off the shelf and using them. And they were, they were amoral and they were ineffective and they led, as I said, to hundreds of thousands of people dying. And, just while we're at it, destroying our moral standing in half the world. I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit over <laughs> <laughs> OTT on that. No, um, what I don't understand then is why, and I'm sure politicians of all parties would come on here and say, totally disagree with torture. If you ask Tony Blair, he'd say he disagreed with it. David Miliband, when he was Foreign Secretary, did a very good job of convincing us that he disagreed with it. Individuals, I'm sure, the vast majority would disagree with it. How then do British governments end up in a situation where, as you say, it looks as if though they've been complicit in things like torture and extraordinary rendition? Yeah. Well, first you've got to remember the circumstances. Uh, I mean, most of, the, most of the things where we went wrong were in 2002, immediately after 9-11. You know, 3,000 people have been murdered brutally. Mm. You know, many Muslims have been murdered brutally in that, in that attack. It was the most hideous, but I'm afraid the most hideously clever uh, act of terrorism in the history of mankind because mm. it was televised, it was, it was dramatic, it involved things that everybody 
was familiar with and therefore was all the more terror, terrifying because that you can all imagine being on an airliner, you can all, all imagine being in a high block of uh, offices, therefore you can imagine it happening to you. Mm. Uh, and the time, the agonising time of what, what, half an hour before the buildings came down, people throwing themselves out, you couldn't, you know, if you'd written a Hollywood movie, you couldn't have devised a, a better propaganda tool in one sense. So in the aftermath of that, decent young men, mostly young men and young women, uh, were working for the agencies, desperately wanted to stop anything like that happening to us, and they didn't want to see Canary Wharf brought down or something like that. So you can understand the imperative, yep. right? The second thing in this is they're dealing with... Uh, the agencies we deal with in this... I mean, in the old days, um, most of what MI6 used to do... I mean, forget James Bond, you know. Basically, most of the intelligence came out of the Moscow cocktail party circuit, right? You, know, you, go, and, you go and recruit this general and that, and that, and that politician and so on, um, and, and so on. But unfortunately, mullahs don't come to cocktail parties. Uh, so, you know, so Oddly, so that's what happens when you get there. <laughs> 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 but the, so we had to rely on other intelligence agencies. The intelligence agencies we had to rely on were the Pakistani ISI, uh, the Saudis, the Iranian... Well, you know, you begin to get the theme. They're, they're not people who are played by the Queensbury rules in our terms, you know. And we, it's quite difficult for us to say to them, don't do, you know, th- this is our prisoner, but don't torture him. Don't do this to him. Don't do that. Even in Afghanistan now, last year, uh, a year or two ago, where somebody was tortured, our prisoner handed over the Afghans, they tortured him. I mean, with iron rods and, and cables. Um, so it's very difficult. You know, it, it, there are, I don't pretend this is simple, but under the pressure of trying to prevent another in 9-11, when you didn't know whether we were going to have half a dozen more in the course of the last decade... Um, you can understand why they did it. And that's what happened. And people bent the rules, and people ignored the rules. And I think even ministers. I mean, we, I, I don't want to uh, uh, incriminate anybody, but you know, the, the Libyan episode, um, mm. Jack Straw is going to be facing, uh, you know, he's being sued on it. Now, I don't know what he knew, um, but it, it, I can imagine ministers thinking this is necessary. I can, I can certainly imagine Tony Blair writing in, uh, in his lovely handwriting in the margin of a thing, do what must be done. You know, the rules of the game have changed. Remember all those phrases? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, those are Blairite phrases, you know. So, um, you know, there we are. <laughs> um, well, let's, uh, let's open it up. Um, I'll take five or six questions from the audience. Please, one-sentence questions. No two-part questions like we've had uh, in the past. I'm keen that we get as many people uh, in as possible. And, uh, and, no, and no suggestions of hot pants or... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and one-sentence uh, one answers, please. Uh, so, uh, we'll start on the balcony, because we don't often start there. Is there anyone on the balcony that has a question? I can't even see. Anyone? No one on the balcony? Great start. Okay, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into the mosh pit. Yes, mate, what's your name? Uh, Martin. Martin, what I'll do, Martin, just for the benefit of the podcast, after you've asked your question, I'll repeat it, and then, David, if you could, uh, yeah. could uh, so, uh, answer. So. Cheers, mate. <laughs> he wasn't going around as a young Tory um, displaying his hand Nelson Mandela badge to actually risk being dismissed. I wonder what your favourite political song or protest would be. Uh, given Cameron being a fan of the Smiths, um, what would your favourite song of protest be? A protest? Is that what it was? Favourite song of protest? Song of protest, song of protest yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, a very obscure song called You've Stolen My Democracy. <laughs> Who's that by? Uh, oh, they've gone to Australia now. They got deported. Uh, 
<laughs> Amazing. <laughs> okay, any more? Oh, yes, our friend at the front. What's your name again? Barry. Barry, yes, Barry. briefly on politicians generally. Yeah. Do you think there should be a mandatory period where politicians or aspiring politicians have to work in the real world? And then go Should there be a mandatory period where politicians have to work in the real world and then go into politics? Well, you've, you've gathered from what I said about what, what I think was the best parliament was. I, I actually think people should be independent and have... Uh, a background and so on, and uh, some do. Got a couple in this room who who, who have. But the but the, uh, the the simple truth is, how the hell do you define the real world? How the hell do you find you know who, who should couldn't shouldn't come in? At the end of the day, it's down to the, who the people elect, you know. Uh, and I think you know what's going to happen in the next five ten years is parties are going to get weaker. All the party memberships are going to pretty much evaporate. Yeah. They're going at the rate of knots now, uh, and you're going to see far more diffuse power patterns, virtual campaigning, and so on. And I think you're going to see, along with that, more individualistic voting uh, in constituencies. And, that, and it'll, be the de- it'll be the people who solve the democratic problem, not the politicians. Do you think that's a good thing? That they will solve it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think... Look, uh, the, never argue with the inevitable. It's a good rule in politics, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, so I think that um, uh, we are going to see the evaporation of parties, and I think we should embrace it and go with it. I mean, when I ran the Snoopers Charter campaign... Uh, of last year I thought we'd won <laughs> of course they're just doing it anyway um, but we went around the ship I, I, I engaged 38 degrees a big sort of yeah. million, million strong they're, they're not Tories they're all communists but you know, they, <laughs> they, you, know, <laughs> you all out there you know, but they no, but they were left to centre put it that way most, many of them uh, uh, but, but they, you know, you, that's what we're going to do I should have said as well before I was going to give because uh, at Christmas I wanted to sort of give a special gift to the best question so we'll, we'll sort of take a vote on so far we've had the protest uh, question we've had the one about politicians and I thought I thought about getting everyone a cracker but I thought instead I'd just give a present uh, to the to the to the best question uh, so there's a bottle of uh, champagne wow. up for grabs <laughs> for the best Tim Lawton now wants to ask a question uh, <laughs> so for the best question we'll, and we'll decide it um, Perhaps collectively. Uh, well, I'll do the Blairite thing. I'll see what you think, and then I'll decide whether you're right or not. Uh, um, uh, so, so far we've had the protest song. We've had the, both good questions, both in the running for a bottle of... Uh, yeah, let's not go into what sort of champagne it is. Um, okay, next question, please. Yes, the gentleman there. Yeah, you were quoted a little while ago describing the Cabinet as well-fed, and I don't think you were talking about Eric Pickles. So I'm wondering um, what you meant by that comment, that comment and uh, what you think the ideal way for <laughs> About seven years. Um, what, 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 you, what, <laughs> you stole my democracy. Um, um, so the question was: um, uh, You once described the current cabinet as being well fed. Uh, what does that mean, and what's the ideal weight for? Yeah, cabinet eleven was? stone is the answer. To the second bit. The, the um, I was needling them deliberately. I mean, indeed, it was the, one of the one of my comments that really, really made them cross. Uh, and uh, so much so that uh, uh, George Osborne uh, wasted a whole bottle of wine on me to tell me it made them cross. <laughs> um, uh, the problem that is now obvious, but was not so obvious at that point, is that in as much as Miliband's having a success, he's making the out-of-touch thing stick a bit mm. in a way that Gordon Brown never could. You know I mean? Do you remember the... The crew and Nampwich by-election. When, oh, dreadful. Uh, and you had those the Tory top, top hats nonsense, and all that. Yeah. It was a complete disaster. Brown, because he's so class-obsessed, didn't actually understand how to do it. 
Miliband's very much cleverer. He went to the sort of Labour Eaton, so, mm. you know, and he, he knows how to play. And he's very, very much more effective. And I just thought that they were letting him get away with that by, by being seen to be, and to some extent actually are, too uh, exclusive, too narrow a circle. Um, uh, and the impression that people outside could easily get is they don't understand ordinary lives. That was the point. It wasn't really about their diet. Otherwise, I would have picked on pickles. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, another question. Keen to get a question from this side of the room and, and, and from a, a woman as well. Yes, madam, what's your name? Hi, Ellie. Hello, Ellie. Hi. Um, the by election you triggered was effectively scuffling your chances of whoever the Tories win in this government. Was it worth it? Oh, yeah. The by election uh, yeah, yeah, you, you mean, stood uh, scuppered your chance of being a minister. I, I spent, uh, I mean, once I'd thought it through, I spent an entire weekend thinking about is there any, any other way of doing this? You know, can, can I find another way of doing it without destroy my career. But the truth is the actual sacrifice was seminal to persuading people it mattered enough to make them listen. So there was no way around it. Um, So firstly, was it worth it? Yes, because it did actually change. It's it's veering back again. For about four years, the the, the terms of debate on this issue altered, and altered in the right direction in favour of individuals and freedom. Um, As I say, it's veering back again, but that's because governments always rot in power. They get, they got at by the, by the system. Uh, so yes, it was worth it for that, for that purpose. I thought at the time that not just was any ministerial career over, but any public career was over. And I thought, you know, nobody's going to pay any attention after I've done this. You know. And then what happened was uh, I spent the summer studying up on Afghanistan. I went out to Afghanistan. And uh, I, we, we interviewed about 50 people out there from the Taliban through to the head of the secret police, the one who does the torturing. <laughs> and, uh, the whole range, you know, and came back and went on Andrew Marr the next morning and said, "If we carry on like this, we're going to lose this war." And all of a sudden, um, parliamentary opinion seemed to flip just like that. And I suddenly thought, "Oh, I'm not dead. You know, I'm not in political terms. I'm not dead." And then we had torture, and we had and we've had a whole series of issues: Snoopers Charter, some stuff on Europe, on the economy. Mm. You know, what's been interesting about this? I've I've acquired by sheer luck. I can't put planning to it. Uh, a combination of being free of any feathers, the whips can't control me, um, <laughs> but at the same time, having enough leverage, if I pick up an issue, I can get it on the front page most of the time anyway. So, and, and, that, and actually, that as does alter the, yeah. the, the way government... I mean, look, prisoner votes, with Jack Straw and me, uh, b- between us, basically moved the entire government position on, you know, uh, and not just on the, that issue, but on the whole question of how Parliament and international courts play off against each other. So the, the answer is no, but uh, I, I was willing to do it even if it was a total destruction. I've been quite surprised to find actually I'm still here. You know. But did, did Cameron... What? Which portfolio do you feel... Oh, I, I, I love the job I did. Home Secretary. I love the job I did. I mean, you know, the, the, the raw truth... I mean, if, if, you want a, if you want a real downside on it, is that I cannot fix the problem that Andrew Mitchell's currently faced in the last year. And not just Andrew Mitchell, but hundreds of other young kids in the streets up and down the country where the, you know, where the police service... Um, uh, lets us down, you know, and uh, that that needs real root and branch reform. Home so. Yeah. Did David Cameron offer you a job after the last election? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read that he had. Did you? Yeah. You want to know the real story? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. The, mo- <laughs> the morning after the election, he rang me up. Yeah. All right. And uh, what he said was. Uh, David, I, I'd, like your, I'd like to talk about two things. I'd like to talk about what position you might fill in the new organisation and, and uh, what, um, 
uh, what uh, we should do in terms of the uh, in terms of the uh, coalition. And I sat, sat and I thought, what's he really want? <laughs> I should do. Um, and uh, I said, look, let's not talk about the the, the position thing until we're, we're through the difficult bit, which mm. is the coalition, uh, uh, which I knew meant we would never return to the subject. But that's what that's, that's how it happened. So that's why you got general. sort of blurred answer. It's, uh, he sort of did, but didn't. <laughs> right, okay. I'm keen for, is there anyone sort of right at the back in that back corner that's got a question? Because I'm keen to sort of often get... No one? Absolutely no one. Okay, I'll take uh, one more. Yes, madam. Oh, it's really simple. So what should surveillance and security yeah. services be doing it's, to tackle this? It's, it's really simple. Terrorism? And that is you, you introduce a judicial uh, decision, a judicial check into the process. At the moment, if, um, again, slightly long, but if, if, the, if the Americans, for example, wanted to, or let's, let's stick with the Brits, if the British agencies wanted to check up on me, without going to a court or a judge at all, they can check up who I called up, every day of the year, who I text it, which websites I go on, and that should get me incriminated alone. <laughs> um, uh, the, um, you know, all those things, and where I am. And by the way, under the Prum Treaty, if I'm a, ma- a, 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 a question suspect, all of your phones can be checked too, because you're close to me, right? Uh, so you do it by proximity. So, so, and all that can be done by somebody else in the same organisation giving an approval. The bloke at the next desk was the way I... Is I characterise it. It's a bit unfair, but mm. now that's just wrong, you know, uh, because actually what I've just described to you is a huge intrusion. The Stasi would have given their right arm for, for this stuff, you know, and, and, and that was the one they saluted with. Yeah, that's right. And and Theresa May and the Prime Minister say, oh, but this is not content. This is just just metadata, as though it's somehow it's just a sort of phone bill. It's not. It actually, can t- I can tell the entire story of your life. I, you know, I asked Vodafone uh, a couple of years ago, I want to see all my metadata, right? And I can tell where I was four times an hour throughout the entire year, you know. Wow. And, who I, and if I had the other ones, I'd look at who was next to Now, that's done without a judge, right? Now, I don't care if they bug what I do or... I mean, I don't have any privacy anyway, but uh, I don't care if they, if they bug and, and, and intercept and so on, so long as a judge decides not some other spook. It's really as simple okay. as that. Forget all the technology. For, you know, forget all of that. Just do that. And if you don't do that, what I'll... T- and I took the secret intelligence bill through the House of Commons. That is one of the things they're using. I tell you now, we absolutely did not intend it to be used for this. This was in, or- in order to enable ministers, if you're a spook, to approve you... Uh, there were three Bs. So I must not get this wrong. Bugging... Burglary and blackmail, right? <laughs> 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 Crikey. Two potentials there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the sort of things we could, we could approve. You know. uh, not wholesale everybody. So forget all the technology, ignore all of that nonsense. It's down to what the law is. Because if, if, uh, if you don't have the law inserted, the spooks will take it to the edge. If I was a spook, and my job was to protect you from terrorists, I'd use every piece of the law I had and I'd stretch everything to the edge because that would be my job. And, you know, if they, if they recruit me to be a spook, I'm probably quite sneaky because that's what they're looking for, you know. <laughs> so, 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 you know, it's got to be down to the law. 
the judge. So to, to, to come down to the judge. Okay, so of those questions then, uh, which one do we think deserves uh, a special Christmas treat? Uh, so just reminds me, we had barriers about uh, professional political backgrounds, we had the question about uh, politicians, the, the cabinet being well fed, we had the question about the protest song, uh, the question about what position in government you would like, and the question about what you would do about surveillance. So now that you've got this percolated, I'll just ask the audience chair uh, for the question about professional political backgrounds. Hooray! Healthy. Uh, about the cabinet being well fed. Okay, that's through, I think. Uh, the question about protest songs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even vote for himself. <laughs> um, the question on what uh, portfolio David would like. Yeah. <laughs> and the question about uh, what David would do about surveillance. Oh, I think that's... Is I think that, it's surveillance. I think it's surveillance, yeah. madam. <laughs> Congratulations and Merry Christmas. There you go. Um, well, we're all going to... I'm going to stay for a drink in the bar anyway, if you'd like to. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to come here to the St. James Theatre. Uh, uh, this is now the end of the first year that we've been doing here. And uh, every single guest we've had here has been phenomenal. And the audiences, I'd say, uh, have been even better. So thank you all for coming tonight. Um, just a couple more things. Please thank everyone here at the St. James's Theatre and at Avalon who helps make this happen. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people working incredibly hard behind the scenes. Thank you. And uh, before we go, uh, our guest when we return on the 29th of January will be former Home Secretary Alan Johnson. Uh, we're still working on a guest for February and in March, Alistair Campbell. Uh, so we have some... Indeed, yeah. yeah two mates of mine. <laughs> <laughs> So it should be, uh, we've got some very big guests coming up that we need to confirm the new year as well. But uh, I think this night, if it proves anything, is that people find politics interesting and they also find it entertaining, which uh, if you believe what you read in mainstream media, you wouldn't, you, you know, you'd think the opposite. So uh, thank you for coming and supporting it. And please uh, give a massive thank you to a phenomenal guest, Mr David Davis. There you go, David Davis. What a legend. Uh, he was on cracking form, wasn't he? And afterwards... Um, Went out for a couple of drinks with him. We got in a cab, and uh, the cabbie immediately once we got out was going, "All right, Davis, mate, you should have been prime minister, mate. You're my favourite politician. You are." And uh, I said, "Is that fairly typical?" And he's, yeah. and then um, as we were walking to the next pub, like people stop him in the street and say, "You should have been prime minister. I wanted you to be leader of the Tory party." So clearly, he's got a huge constituency out there, David Davis. And it'll be interesting to see. And then run up to the next election. Who knows what will happen after the election? Who knows where David Davis will be? Maybe he'll come back when he's Prime Minister and uh, give us a, uh, a Prime Ministerial exclusive. Who knows? He was absolutely magnificent, though. My next guest is Alan Johnson. And I'm just reading his memoir of his childhood called This Boy, which even if you're you know, not a fan of Alan Johnson or aren't going to come to the shows or whatever... It is a phenomenal book. I doubt there's a politician in Britain who could have written a book like that about his upbringing and, uh, frankly, growing up in extreme poverty um, in London, in post-war Britain. It's an absolutely cracking read, and I thoroughly recommend it. He'll be my guest on the 29th of January, which I'm very excited about. We're just waiting to confirm the guests for February. In March, we've got Alistair Campbell, and then I'll be announcing April, May, uh, and beyond that uh, as soon as possible. So thanks again for downloading it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, thanks to those of you who've come down and, and seen the live shows. Until next time, ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.